Hey everyone. As you know, I'm a huge fan of living a healthy lifestyle, including taking the right supplements. Collagen is one of my favorite supplements. It is the most abundant protein in the human body. As we grow older, we break it down faster than we can replace it. This loss affects our skin, nails, hair, muscles, joints, and tendons, bones, and gut, making us look and feel old. Totem Voss is a wellness company that created a collagen chew for a real-life person, the 78-year-old mother of the founder. As a result, the quality is unrivaled. Totem Voss chews contain equal part deep-sea Icelandic cod, domestic grass-fed beef, and organic chicken bone broth, along with companion ingredients such as vitamin C for full collagen synthesis. These varied sources address a greater range of collagen needs within the body. Their customers are reporting results with such problems as rosacea, osteoarthritis, osteoporosis, degenerative disc disease, as well as improved hair, skin, and nails. Practitioners are finding the juice to be an effective tool in restoring gut health. You can find Totem Voss, that's T-O-T-U-M-V-O-S, at getchews.com. That's getchews.com. Use code DRDIVA, that's D-R-D-I-V-A, for an additional 10% off your first order. Yoga science teaches us how to use the mind to take actions in the world that will result in benefits both for ourselves and for the entire organism, whether it's human, animal, mineral, environmental, because it's all one. Everything is all one. And so when we make one small change in our diet, for example, it, it changes everything. It changes every relationship that I have and relationships that I don't even know that I have. Hello, this is Dr. Deva Nagula. Welcome to From Doctor to Patient, where our goal is to bring you topics of discussion that will educate you on the various healing modalities to help balance the mind, body, and spirit. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of From Doctor to Patient. Today, I am joined with Leonard Perlmutter. He is the founder and director of the American Meditation Institute in Avril Park, New York, and is the originator of National Conscience Month. Leonard has presented informative yoga science and meditation workshops at the MD Anderson Cancer Center, Kaiser Permanente, the New York Times Forum on Yoga, the Commonwealth Club of California, University of Connecticut School of Medicine, Washington University Medical School, the University of Colorado Medical School, University of Wisconsin School of Nursing, the U.S. Military Academy at West Point Associates of Graduates, the Albany Medical College, Berkshire Medical Center, and has served on the faculties of the New England Institute of Ayurvedic Medicine and the International Himalayan Yoga Teachers Association. He's the author and editor of Transformation, the Journal of Yoga Science as Holistic Mind-Body Medicine and as Heart and Science of Yoga. Course curriculum has been certified by the Albany Medical College, the American Medical Association, and the American Nurses Association for continuing medical education credit. Leonard, it is such a pleasure to have you on the show today. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. You have a book coming out very soon. And um, I'd love for you to tell us a little bit about what inspired you to write this book and you know, talk to us about a little bit about what this book is about. Well, the inspiration, I think, from, for the book came about 
uh, when I was in quarantine uh, because of the COVID uh, in uh, starting in March of 2020. And uh, I lost contact, personal contact, live contact with students uh, every day in classes. We did go online, which was uh, very, very helpful. But you miss the, uh, the, uh, the personal uh, contact. And I have extra time on my hands because of this. So I, I'm thinking, well, you know, why is this uh, situation coming to me in particular? How can, how can I uh, uh, go to school on it? And, and what's, what's the gift that is present in it? And I, I contemplated that for a while, and I thought, well, you know, what, what can I possibly do? What can I do to reach people, to help them help themselves through this very complicated and painful uh, situation that everybody is in? Because it has so many different uh, permutations with uh, so many different kinds of relationships. And so uh, I thought, well, you know, if I could do something and, and tell people about using the conscience, which is, gosh, it's, it's what separates us from all other animals. We, we, unlike every other animal, have a conscience. And how great is that? Uh, we don't have to rely on uh, just this mind-body-sense complex because the conscience has the capacity to go beyond the matrix. Mm-hmm. But to the center of consciousness, to uh, what uh, yoga science refers to as the superconscious portion of the mind, where Albert Einstein saw mathematical equations and Paul McCartney hears beautiful melodies. doesn't mean that we're going to become songwriters or uh, uh, mathematicians, uh, but it does mean that if we can use the conscience as our guide in thought, word, and deed, uh, we will benefit in in ways that we just cannot imagine at the present time. Mm-hmm. Yes, I said to myself, that's what I will do. I will write a book on the conscience. And how do you define conscience? Well, it's one of the four major functions of the mind. The mind is very interesting. You know, we hear this whole uh, uh, relationship, mind-body. But still, because of our dualistic predilections, we see them as separate, not one. But I know from my own personal experience, I can't even lift my hand without first entertaining a thought. What does that mean? It means the mind moves first and the body follows. To me, when I, when I uh, uh, read that and I learned it, and I began to apply it, it was a game changer in my life. Uh, the, my richest resource became my thoughts, because my thoughts become my words, and my thoughts also become my actions, and words and actions always lead to consequences that can lead me in one direction or another. So the conscience is the only function of the mind that can discriminate, determine, judge, and decide. What is the conscience? It acts as a mirror, and it has the capacity, when used and purified, to reflect wisdom from the center of consciousness. 
to tell us in real time the thought to think, the word to speak, and the action to take that will enable each of us to fulfill the purpose of our lives without pain, without misery, and without bondage. And when we use the conscience, we know how we feel. And when we don't use it, we also know how we feel. You mentioned conscience as one of the four functions of the mind. What are the other three? The other three are also familiar to us. And, you know, we've always heard or thought, you know, it seems like I have different voices in my mind. (laughs) Well, it's true. We do have different voices in our mind. And each serves a unique, very important purpose. So the first one that I'll discuss is ego. Uh, Now, this is not the ego that we learned in uh, psychology classes. This is not about, you know, being puffed up with self-importance. Ego, uh, in the science of yoga, is anything that separates me from my essential nature. Well, what is my essential nature? Well, I know that the I have a body, but I'm not the body, and yet the body is constantly changing. I know I have mind with thoughts, desires, and emotions, and all those thoughts, desires, and emotions are always changing. But at the core of my being, beyond everything that changes, is something that never changes, and that is the background of all reality, and that is consciousness itself. And within consciousness resides an intuitive library of wisdom. And it is the nature of consciousness to be blissful and full. But the ego sees itself as separate and works very hard to separate us from our essential nature. Because the ego, which is tethered to the reptilian brain, is all about self-preservation and the fear of annihilation. So for the ego, the sky is always falling. There's, there's, always, there's always a problem. There's always a crisis that the ego is going to save us from. Now, the ego, I imagine, walks around with a chainsaw strapped to its hip. And whenever the ego experiences a relationship, the ego takes out the chainsaw and cuts it in half and says, oh, this is pleasant. It's good. Let's reprise it. And this is unpleasant over here, this other half. Uh, It's it's bad. Let's avoid it. But we all know from our own experience that that which is pleasant isn't always good for us. That which is unpleasant isn't always bad for us. So if I get locked in, to my likes and dislikes, that mental inflexibility inevitably is going to change the consciousness of every cell in my body, and those cells will become contracted, and the organs which are comprised of the cells will be compromised. So, is the ego bad? No. It just has a limited perspective. Sometimes it's appropriate. I need an ego right now to speak to you and to your listeners. I need an ego when I want to drive an automobile. 
And that limited perspective is appropriate. But a lot of times, it's not appropriate. How do we know? The conscience always knows. So that's the ego. The senses, this is the second function of the mind. Our mind projects our creative energy through the eyes, the nostrils, the mouth, the ears, the hands, and the feet to inspect the material world, looking for relationships that will bring me happiness, that will bring me security. Now, the senses, too, only have a limited perspective. And we know it's very easy to squeeze a tube of toothpaste, but it's very difficult to put the toothpaste back in the tube. So when the mind extrudes our creative energy through the eyes, the nostrils, the mouth, the ears, the hands, the feet, it's virtually impossible to get that creative energy back. And if the truth be known, we need a lot of creative energy to fulfill the purpose of our lives. And yet so many of the desires that the senses has uh, are not very helpful. So the senses dissipate a tremendous amount of our creative energy. So that's the second function of the mind. Limited perspective, not always wrong. We have a body. We have senses. Life's to be enjoyed. I like apple pie just as well as other people like other uh, forms of nice little treats. Uh, but the question is, what's to be done and what's not to be done in the present moment? The third function of the mind is the unconscious. The unconscious is the repository of all of our merits and demerits, everything that we deem essential to self-preservation. Mm -hmm. And so the key to successful living is to coordinate this holistic organism called our mind. We don't want to get rid of the ego. We don't want to get rid of the senses. We don't want to get rid of the unconscious mind. We want them to be healthy. But we also don't want them to be uh, loud and pushy and insistent that their limited perspective must be accepted. So what I imagine is sitting all of us down around the kitchen table ego, senses, unconscious mind, and the conscience, and me, and have a little family discussion. Look, we're all one. We need each other. Let's all pull together and access the best that everyone has to offer, and then use that as the basis of our actions in the world. Hey, Dr. Diva here. Thank you to all my listeners who supported my book and helped to make it a huge success. You all have helped us hit number one in Barnes & Noble, number one in oncology, cancer, healing, and medical ebooks, and number 21 in all of the Kindle store. You've also helped us hit number three on the Wall Street Journal bestseller list. If you haven't received your copy, you can find it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or booksatmillion.com. Visit from doctortopatient.com to become part of our growing community of health and wellness aficionados and to learn more. If you like our book and podcast, please go to amazon.com to write a five-star review and go to Apple Podcasts 
to also write a five-star review on this podcast or any of our episodes that you've enjoyed. We need reviews to attract and secure top-notch guests for this show. Thank you so much for your support. What's interesting to me is, you know, my development spiritually has been all about letting go of the ego and trying to appreciate, understand, experience the oneness. And until you experience the oneness, it's really hard to identify with the oneness and let go of the ego. And so can you expand on that a little bit and how the ego relates to the oneness and how a person can, you know, through uh, various techniques, appreciate and experience the oneness? Well, if we truly believe in the oneness, in the unicity within the diversity, it means that every aspect of the diversity, including the ego, is part of the oneness. (laughs) So, uh, yoga science says include all and exclude none. Mm -hmm. And so we need an ego. It's part of our holistic uh, organism. I don't want to get rid of it, but I have a responsibility toward it, I need to parent it. I need to parent it because it's not always correct. Not based on what I think. I defer to the superconscious wisdom reflected by the conscience. And my job is simply to be in service to that and to parent the ego, the senses, and the unconscious mind to go along with it. Now, the highest principle of yoga is a word called ahimsa, non-injury, non-harming, non-violence, which means that for me, when I step on this path, I'm, I'm not to do any injury to me as well as to others. So in a strange way, it teaches me to love myself, to love my, my liver, to love my pancreas, to love my brain, to love my eyes, to love my joints, to love my ego, senses, unconscious mind, and conscience. And so the more that I can do that with relative ease, rather than taking on too much too soon, which would not be kind to me or anyone else, if I can start with small things, I like to. St- I started myself with food, so uh, I began cutting back some food. Now, some food I, I didn't want to cut back. The personality, the senses, the unconscious mind, the ego didn't want to cut cut it back. So when I was faced with the choice of, am I going to have this cookie? Am I not going to have this cookie? Initially, I was not ready to give up the cookie. But at a certain point, for the sake of a scientific experiment, I agreed to giving up a quarter of a cookie (laughs) just to see how I would feel. And not only did I feel better, but the ego felt better, the senses felt better, and the unconscious mind felt better. Okay, now we have a shared experience of giving up something that we benefited from. That little beachhead can be built upon through the experimentation process in other relationships. Mm-hmm. And also, on a personal level, I've been trying to 
really expand and raise consciousness. And I'm curious how we can utilize our own conscience to raise consciousness. Great question. It happens quite naturally. When I have a relationship, there's either something to do or something not to do. How do I know? Well, if I rely on the conscience to tell me what's to be done and what's not to be done, invariably, in that process, I'm going to get pushback from the ego, the senses, and or the unconscious mind. So in real time, if I can sacrifice the personalities, Leonard's attachment to the limited perspective of the ego, senses, and unconscious mind in this situation, instead of serving it, if I can sacrifice it, if I can make it sacred by offering it back to the origin from which it came, because it too is a manifestation of the one. If I can sacrifice it so that my outer action reflects my inner wisdom, that contractive power of that second jelly donut, or whatever it is, I'm using a metaphor here of food, that that contracted and debilitating power of that desire or that fear or that anger will be transformed and repurposed into healing energy, an expansion of my willpower, and an increase in my creativity, my access to the wisdom of the superconscious mind. Mm -hmm. So it's in giving that we receive. We have to give up something that we value that is in conflict with our inner wisdom. I'm talking about judgments and anger and fear and, and certain kinds of desires. We learned in fifth grade that energy cannot be created nor destroyed, but it can be transformed. And the same is true with desire, fear, and anger. These are all it's all energy, and we can keep it in, the, in uh, the kinetic state, or we can transform it and put it into the, uh, the state that uh, uh, is, is not used right now, the potential state that I can draw on later on. That's how we expand our consciousness, our access to the superconscious portion of the mind, by giving by sacrificing something that the conscience is asking us to sacrifice. Mm -hmm. and again, going back to the conscience, what kind of problems can be solved by relying on our conscience? Well, the first problem that we can solve by relying on the conscience is to realize we have no problems. Now, what does that mean? We all know that we have problems. Well, do we really have problems? What is a problem? So if, if your listeners can just bring that word into their heart center, midpoint between the two breasts and the center of the chest, just bring that word in and close your eyes and just listen to the word problem, problem, problem. I have a problem. And then Evaluate. How does that feel? 
What is the weight of that word? And to me, it's heavy. It's onerous. It's debilitating. Oh, I have a problem. I, I feel like I'm being shut down. But if you, if you can switch that word problem to the word situation, 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 I have a situation. Oh, that's much lighter, filled with many possibilities that I am capable of. Yes, maybe it, it's going to mean a little work, but I'm up for it because I have a situation. So why do I bring that up first? Well, you use the word problem, and I say we have no problems because the word, our language triggers us. Just words trigger us and diminish the mind's capacity to act to, the, to its fullest capacity. So I say, watch the mind, watch the thoughts that come, and use your theosaurus. You know, look for a different word for problem. And instead, I use situation. And I find that I'm much more fluid and much more creative in, in that regard. And so previous problems are fixable if I look at it as a situation and I use my conscience as my guide. Hmm. In your book, you mentioned several types of experiments focusing on attention, breath, and sleep. What's others that we can try? Well, as I mentioned, uh, Deva, uh, right up front, uh, food choices are uh, very powerful. Uh, and they're filled with creative energy. They're filled with creative energy. When I was 13 or 14 years old, and we all remember when we were 13, 14 years old, that this was the crown of creation. When we were 13 or 14, we knew everything about everything. Not really, but we thought we did. <laughs> and so what I tell people is that if I were living today with that same mental software that I had when I was 13 or 14, either I would be dead already or I would be seriously ill. So in the process of practicing different experiments, I began to give up food just because I love them. And instead, I looked for food that loved me, loved my spleen, loved my pancreas, loved my uh, joints. Mm -hmm. And slowly, slowly, I felt better. I had less pain in my life. So those are the types of experiments that are very, very helpful. And, and, and we can start with relatively easy things. Even brushing your teeth. You just finished dinner. Uh huh. So the conscience says, oh, well, this would be a good opportunity to brush your teeth. Mm -hmm. Well, let's take, a, let's take a survey here. What does the ego say? Uh, not really. What does the senses say? I'd like another jelly donut. What does the unconscious mind say? Oh, well, I'm with the other two. So it's my job to parent them so that they listen to the conscience and see, for the sake of an experiment, the value of it. So that we take a couple of minutes after dinner and brush our teeth. Going back to the foods that you're just previously discussing, 
Are you referring to our choice of foods that are more have a relation with our dosha, or are you referring to foods specifically avoiding the standard American diet and eating more organic and less processed foods? Well, uh, for me, uh, it's one and the same. Uh, Ayurveda has been extremely important to me on a very practical down-to-earth level. It has taught me the uh, positive aspects of this particular uh, mind-body-sense complex and also the limitations of it. And so uh, my primary dosha since childhood, of course, uh, has been kapha. I've been led by kapha. Kapha is the heavier elements of earth and water. And of course, as a young child, I loved those types of foods. I stuffed my mouth with bagels and cream cheese and, and ice cream, uh, and I felt terrible, and I had very bad stomach pains and terrible allergies that uh, came from that. Mm -hmm. And so that taught me, in a very practical level, by experimenting with those foods and changing them out uh, for foods that had more fire in them and perhaps a little drier, more vada and more pitta, that I could balance my body and my mind a, a little better, quite a bit better. And I was healthier. I lost weight. I felt better. I didn't have the stomach pains. It was a miracle. <laughs> Not really, because there were thousands of years ago, there were these women and men that had the same issues that we have, and they experimented with these principles of Ayurveda and their doshas, their body constitutions, and they honored that in the food choices that they made. And it made them feel better. And as I experimented, I concurred. I feel better. And you're often very knowledgeable and your teachings are through the yoga science. What exactly is yoga science and how are we able to use its practical applications in today's world? Well, yoga science is the oldest mind-body medicine uh, on the planet. Uh, they say it's about 6,000 years old. It, uh, you know, it, it goes deep into uh, prior to recorded history. Uh, yoga science is just an educational body of knowledge that teaches us how to use the mind to take actions in the world that will result in benefits, both for ourselves and for the entire organism, whether it's human, animal, mineral, environmental, because it's all one. Everything is all one. So any, any choice that I make has profound effects. It's, it's a little bit analogous to taking a pebble and dropping it into a pond and seeing all the ripples that it leaves. And so when we make one small change in our diet, for example, it, it changes everything. It changes every relationship that I have mm -hmm. and relationships that I don't even know that I have. And meditation. So how does meditation fit into all of this? Meditation is really the key to provide me the skill set to make these kinds of choices. So uh, meditation is not about eliminating thoughts, which is impossible. The mind thinks, and it does that for a, a livelihood. 
and we need a mind that can uh, uh, change the channel at the drop of a hat. But when the mind becomes so habituated to changing the channel <laughs> for no good reason, other than restlessness, uh, then it needs a little discipline, it needs a little training. Nobody has ever taught us to train the mind. And so in meditation, we accept that only one object will be given my mental energy to. We call that mantra. And every, and every spiritual and religious tradition has mantras. Mantras are a word or a series of words containing the name of the supreme reality, this perfection, this supreme intelligence. Mm -hmm. And so when I give my attention to that, several things happen. Every time I give my attention in meditation to that mantra, the mantra is always generating love and fearlessness and strength, which is then deposited in my unconscious mind. And when interceding thoughts, images, or sounds come, it's not a problem. I recognize, oh, that's just part of the habit of the mind. And it's also an integral part of meditation. So instead of being upset that I can't just focus on one object, I honor and witness the interceding distraction. I sacrifice it by offering it back to the one origin from which it has come, from which everything has come. And then I bring the mind back to the mantra. So what I'm doing for the one minute or two minutes or five minutes that I'm learning to meditate, I'm creating the skill set of one-pointed attention, which brings about genius in every human being. One-pointed attention, not multitasking, which is impossible, and it only creates a depressed immune system and depression in the mind. It's impossible to multitask. But if I can learn through meditation to have one-pointed attention. Now, what happens? That allows me then to also create a space between the stimulus of a distraction and my ultimate response to it. When a distracting thought comes, or an image or a sound, with one-pointed attention, I can create a space between stimulus and response. And in that space between stimulus and response, I now have the freedom to redirect my attention toward the conscience. And the conscience will tell me whether this distraction is appropriate to give my attention to or it needs to be sacrificed. Now, when we meditate, we automatically accept that any distraction is to be sacrificed just for the sake of training the mind. Only the mantra is to be given our attention for the one or two or five minutes that we start with. Mm -hmm. And so when that occurs and a distraction comes along, I create a space between stimulus and response. That creates the tool and the skill of detachment. I'm learning detachment. I don't have to be a reactionary. If somebody offers me poison, I don't have to drink it. I don't have to consume it. It provides me the wisdom of my conscience 
and if I can do what has to be done based on what the conscience is saying, namely sacrificing these interceding distractions, I can build the muscles of willpower. So meditation teaches me one-pointed attention, detachment, discrimination from the and wisdom from the conscience, and willpower. Hey, I can use those tools all day long in every single relationship to do what's to be done and what's not to be done. Hmm. And, and Leonard, I'd like to understand how people can find more about your teachings, where they can find you on the internet, and, and specifically, more importantly, when and where can they f- purchase your book? The book, I guess, is available right now. Uh, uh, you can get it at uh, any of the fine booksellers. Amazon has them, Barnes & Noble, any, any of your uh, local stores uh, that sell uh, books. Uh, we have a website for the book called yourconscience.org yourconscience.org. And that can give you information about the book in detail and also uh, ordering instructions. Uh, Insofar as me personally, uh, I I teach through the American Meditation Institute. And our website is americanmeditation.org, americanmeditation.org. And I'd like to extend an invitation to all of your listeners and to you too, uh, Diva, that every Sunday morning from 9.30 to 11, every Sunday, 9.30 to 11, we have a free guided meditation. And we call it a satsang, but it's very similar to what you and I have been doing right now, uh, Diva, having a a philosophical and scientific uh, inquiry and conversation. And so you can get a free link uh, on the homepage of our website, AmericanMeditation.org. Excellent. If you'd like, if anybody would like to reach me personally, my email, if that's okay, if I can give that, of course. is ami at AmericanMeditation.org. Ami at AmericanMeditation.org. And we'll include that in, in the show notes as well. Thank you. you. Leonard, it's been uh, a pleasure to have you on the show and um, I wish you all the best and and congratulations and good luck with the book launch. Thank you very much. Thank you for your time and your interest. Mm